Turn up the heat this summer. Get propane delivery straight to your door with Cinch. C-Y-N-C-H. It's easy and convenient to order, and Cinch brings the tanks to your home on your schedule. Just go to Cinch.com. That's C-Y-N-C-H.com. Select your delivery date and drop-off location, and Cinch handles the rest. Now, new customers can get their first propane tank exchange for just $10 when they use promo code TANK10 at checkout. Cinch. Propane grill tank home delivery. Limited time offer. Restrictions apply. Visit C-Y-N-C-H.com offer for details. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network. Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Par les soirs bleus d'été, j'irai dans les sentiers, picoté par les blés, foulé l'herbe menue, rêveur, j'en sentirai la fraîcheur à mes pieds. Je laisserai le vent baigner ma tête nue. Je ne parlerai pas, je ne penserai rien. Mais l'amour infini me montera dans l'âme Et j'irai loin, bien loin Comme un bohémien Par la nature Heureux Comme avec une femme Remember the back river Jane Doe the body found by two hydro employees in the fall of 1953, gagged and strangled with her own skirt, a 20-pound block of cement tied with rope around her neck, body badly decomposed, having been in the water for five to nine months. We're going to take up that story again. It has more twists and turns than the wild mouse at Belmont Park. This is Who Killed Teresa. We're going to pick up where we uh, left off with this story back on October 13th. And um, if, if you're looking for, if, if, if Montreal is unfamiliar for you and you're looking for a visual cue in your mind, uh, the Black Dahlia case in L.A., um, Elizabeth Short uh, was murdered in 1947. This case from Montreal takes place 1953. So it's definitely within, you know, that um, that span of time post-war, uh, post-World War II. So just think, you know, uh, you know, think L.A. Confidential, think uh, short ties and high pants, and you'll have it. Um, and if you're new to the podcast, don't worry. Here's uh, a refresher on Back River Jane Doe. Viens, nous nous coucherons sous le même manteau. Nous nous endormirons liés comme On October 5th, 1953, two Quebec Hydro employees discovered the body of 
an unidentified young woman, in the back river, now known as Riviere de Prairies, running between the islands of Montreal and Laval, uh, near the hydroelectric plant and Visitation Island. So this is between Ahansic and uh, Montreal North. Uh, the victim was between 25 and 35 years of age, weighed approximately 150 pounds, and had blue eyes with light brown hair. She had been gagged and strangled with her own skirt, a 20-pound block of cement tied around her neck with a rope. Her hands and knees and ankles were bound with half-inch rope. The body was badly decomposed, having been in the water, as we said, five to nine months. Two fingers remained on her left hand, and from these the police attempted to establish fingerprints. Now, that's all we reported when I first spoke of Back River Jane Doe back in October. And now I'm going to continue the story, but before I do, right out of the gate, I'd like to address today's music. Félix Leclerc is uh, one of the most popular and celebrated uh, artists in Quebec. He's, he's kind of like um, our Woody Guthrie. And um, it would take, um, you know, someone like a Dylan or, um, well, someone like a Dylan to come along in Quebec and knock him off his post in the late 60s. And that, that is uh, Robert Charlebois, who uh, we don't have time to go into Charlebois. Today, he's, um, he's epic and he requires an epic landscape. So we'll save Charlebois for the new year. Charlebois, the reaction... Um, you know, from Dylan to, to Guthrie, from Leclerc to Charlebois, it was very similar in Quebec. Um, Charlebois was kind of like uh, Dylan and John Lennon and Elvis Presley all roll into one big basket of fun. And um, so, as you can hear, Le- Leclerc is very, very folky, uh, most popular in the 50s and 60s. Um, he was born in Le Touc which is halfway between the Saguenay region and uh, Trois-Rivières-Shawinigan. He worked for a time in the early 30s in Quebec uh, uh, radio as an announcer and then as a screenwriter uh, much, much later. He became, he became most well-known in Quebec uh, on the radio, not for his songs, for his stories. It wasn't until a, a French impresario discovered him touring in France years later that he became popular there and his music was brought back to to Quebec and, and kind of it, well, it was discovered. Um, I know Félix Leclerc because um, my father, after the, um, the, uh, uh, the separatists got in power in Quebec in 1976, everyone was uh, required to learn French, uh, uh, Including my father, who was an established businessman at the time, did not did did not know a lot of French. knew a couple of words like "casquette" uh, and uh, "comment ça va" avec une crosscut saw. You know, it's kind of things he couldn't speak French. Um, but they, you know, they immediately said to all, everybody, anybody in management with his engineering firm, all right, that you know, that's it. You are all guys are all going to school. So they sent them somewhere to, I think, some some campus in Trois-Rivières for a month to learn French. And, you know, part of this would be 
cultural exercises where one night they went out to a concert and this would have been in the 70s when uh, at Leclerc's later in his life and it was a it, it was a solo show from Felix Leclerc and you know there's this guy on stage with, just with a guitar you know and a check shirt um and he blew everyone away so immediately the Felix uh, uh, Felix Leclerc albums came home and we all got converted in the nine years from 1945 to 1953, Back River Jane Doe was the only unsolved murder on the docket of the Quebec Provincial Police's 88 homicides in that period. The Back River murder remained a complete puzzle. Police interviewed hundreds of people, found scores of missing women, and checked dozens of tips. In 1954, a man imprisoned in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, claimed the woman was Rose Laflamme, which (laughs) sounds like a FACO name to me if I ever heard one, Uh, Rose Laflamme, and that she was strangled in a rooming house in downtown Montreal. Now, many considered the story a hoax, but was it? For a time, police were seeking to question prominent Montreal lawyer and city councillor Lucien Gagnon as a witness in the affair. At the time, Gagnon was set to stand trial for fraud and receiving bribes. He fled to New York City where he claimed to be ill, producing doctor's certificates in his defense. And when detectives arrived in New York... They were unable to find Gagnon. Very quickly, the provincial police backed off uh, with Director Hilliard uh, Beauregard stating that Lucien Gagnon is definitely not wanted for questioning in the woman's murder. The last mention of the Back River murder affair came in the summer of 1954. For a time, police were holding 41-year-old Armand Duhamel, a rooming house owner living in Saint-Eustache, as a material witness in the case. And there's that rooming house again. Duhamel's attorneys, one who turned out to be Lucien Gagnon, he of the flight to New York City, attempted to have Duhamel released on bail, but the request was denied. There was a coroner's inquiry, but nothing really comes of it. And in the fall of 1954, Armand Duhamel was set free. Police said he would remain as an interested party in the Back River Jane Doe affair. And now we've reached our first twist. Imagine yourself in the fun house at Belmont Park. For this is not a podcast about Back River Jane Doe. This is about Armand Duhamel. 
C'était un Québécois, Naraquois comme tout Québécois, qu'on trouva pendu l'autre fois sous la gargouille d'un toit. Il était amoureux, ça rend un homme bien malheureux. Écoutez son histoire un peu, après vous rirez mieux. La Armand de Hamel and uh, Lucien Gagnon would have a long association with each other. To what extent they co-conspired in the murder of Back River Jane Doe, if at all, is the subject of our next hour. So Armand Duhamel was born around 1913, and he was first picked uh, up in um, November of 1940, when he's about, he's 27 years of age. At about three o'clock in the morning, Duhamel is driving from Montreal to Valleyfield, in the car with him are some male friends and a 16-year-old girl. Duhamel leaves his friends in Valleyfield and he heads back to Montreal with the girl. At 5 a.m. near Malocheville, which is just south of Chateauguay, Duhamel slams into a car parked on the side of the highway. The owner, Joël Leduc, claimed he had stopped for just a few minutes in front of his house to pick up a passenger. Duhamel sued Le Duc for $315 in damages, but in 1941, a judge ruled in favor of Le Duc, stating he had every right to stop along the highway for a few minutes. In his judgment, the Honorable Joseph Archambault suggested that Duhamel was probably driving in excess of the speed limit. In 1945, uh, Armand Duhamel is in trouble with the law again. Duhamel is running an all-night high-stakes poker game. In the course of the night, one of the players, a barber named Arcadius Boisclair, is parched, so Duhamel offers him a glass of lemonade. In court, Beauclair recounts what happened next. I don't know. I remember the lemonade. Then waking up the next day on the Chesterfield. When Beauclair awakes, he notices that his $450 ring is missing from his finger. Beauclair questions Duhamel what happened to the ring, to which Duhamel replies, Don't you remember? You lost it to me last night. You will find the paper to that effect in your coat pocket. Duhamel also shows Boisclair a $500 check he claims Boisclair had signed. In court, Boisclair admits he liked a good card game. Nothing but $100 bills were on the table. Boisclair spent 24 hours in the gambling house. The defense counsel finally asks... Is it not possible that you were exhausted? Not before I drank the lemonade. <laughs> and, I, you know, at this point, if you got going through your head of like a 1940s version of The Sopranos, right, with Frank Sinatra Jr. and David Lee uh, Roth at the table, and then all of a sudden there's a knock at the door and the guy from Wings shows up, then uh, we are of the same mind. From the court proceedings, we learned that Armand Duhamel lived at 1529 Sherbrooke 
Street West. He's later acquitted when the judge rules there was a strong doubt in favor of the accused. And I'm, for all of this, as we mentioned in address, um, I've put a photo uh, up on the website, TheresaLore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E.com. There's a, a lot of good visual material for this episode, so check it out. Pour avoir des plumes à son chapeau Tijon a tué un oiseau Dans son filet Tijon a pris Pour son dîner une perdrie Ça fait deux morts dans la vallée On peut pas les ressusciter For the next few years, Armand Duhamel is in and out of the courts in a series of lawsuits with a variety of plaintiffs and defendants. Uh, Georgette uh, Cotu, Paul Dorea, um, Edouard Filion. And most of these actions involve Duhamel obtaining property under false pretenses. Georgette Cotu, it turns out, at one point was Duhamel's landlord, and attempted to have him evicted. She died destitute in 1970s with all her possessions on the auction block. At one point in 1946, Duhamel countersues Arcadius Boisclair for the failure to pay his debt from the poker game, but the matter is dismissed in 1948. In 1950, Duhamel's wife, Dame Laurette Bison, files for separation. Then in 1951, something interesting. Duhamel, who we now learn had several aliases, Robert Dion, Lionel Lalande, M. Demers, is fined $2,000, the heaviest fine imposed by the criminal courts in that era, for overcharging on room rents. And the interesting thing is that the rooming house was located at 1085 St. Lawrence Boulevard. It's, it's now a vacant lot, uh, but it's um, just down the street from what was at that time the red light district. Was this the rooming house where Rose Laflamme, a.k.a. Back River Jane Doe, was murdered. J'ai deux montagnes à traverser, deux rivières à boire. J'ai six vieux lacs à déplacer, trois chutes neuves à mettre au lit. 18 savannes à nettoyer, une ville à faire avant la nuit. C'est pourquoi de forêt, il n'est pas revenu. There now comes one of the most bizarre tales in the saga of Armand Duhamel. In 1952, the SPCA is called to the corner of Sherbrooke and Guy, Sherbrooke and Gee, after locals spy a Cadillac strapped with 
two deer carcasses across the hood. Now, in this era during deer season, that was not such an unusual uh, sight to see um, in downtown Montreal. But the unusual thing is that there was also a live doe in the back seat. The Cadillac belonged to Duhamel, and he is immediately arrested. From the matter, we learned that in the trunk of the Cadillac, police found a box containing the cut-up meat of two other deer. We also learned that Duhamel had a second residence at 1191 Berry Street, not far from that St. Lawrence Boulevard rooming house. In 1954, Duhamel is convicted and uh, uh, fined several hundreds of dollars. The dough was taken to the St. James Street headquarters and then released into the wild, never to be heard from again. By 1954, Duhamel is now living in St. Eustache, just off the island of Montreal. And it, it is at this point we we come back to the beginning of our story where he's held as a material witness in the Back River Jane Doe affair. Duhamel is questioned by police but later released. In 1955, Duhamel is again before the courts, this time for causing a fight with one of his tenants at a Westmount rooming house and also for failing to provide information about his income taxes. The tenant argument case is dismissed. In the case of the income taxes, Duhamel is again, again acquitted when it can never be established that he actually received a registered letter from the tax department. Nineteen sixty. Jamel is convicted and sentenced to two months in jail and fined $200 for using slugs at three toll gates on the Laurentian auto route. The Bond Scam. In 1963, Armand de is charged with conspiring with two other men, Armand Gagné and Guy Desjardins, to defraud various bank branches in Quebec and Ontario. The case involved stolen bonds valued at over $5 million. Over $3 million of the bonds were stolen from a Brockville Trust and Savings Company in 1958 in Ontario, with the remaining coming from a Bank of Montreal branch in Outremont in 1957. Now, de Hamel may have stumbled upon the potential for such grifts quite by accident. In 1956, a $500 bond 
is stolen from a bank in Charlesbourg on the northern outskirts of Quebec City. The bond ends up in the possession of a man called Baudouin, who in the 1960s happens to be staying in one of the Montreal rooming houses operated by uh, Duhamel. Baudouin, quote, disappears, and while uh, his room uh, is being cleaned by Duhamel's then-wife, Laurette, uh, she, quote, finds the bond while going through his effects. Again, Duhamel gets off scot-free in this affair with the judge stating that the witness had incredible memories, but the testimony was believable. Uh, later, Duhamel was again acquitted in another bond conspiracy case where uh, he was found to be in possession of stolen bond coupons from a Valleyfield bank. By 1963, the acquittals were over for Duhamel. The judge sets bail at $35,000, an amount Duhamel was unable to come up with, and he was uh, forced to await trial in the Bordeaux jail. Uh, just thinking about this now, Valleyfield rings a bell. Remember earlier, he took that trip to Valleyfield with the young man and the 16-year-old girl, quickly, hastily comes back, slams into the, the car just south of um, Chateauguay. Mm, curious. We'll get to that. Um, at the preliminary inquiry, co-conspirator uh, Armand Gagné testifies that while working as a bank accountant at the Banque Nationale Canadienne in uh, Laval, he was, quote, tipped $800 for cashing $16,000 worth of the stolen government bonds. Gagné went on to say that he was introduced to Duhamel by the other co-conspirator, Guy Desjardins, who took Gagné to Duhamel's home in NDG. So this guy's got several places, right? In NDG, with a desire to, quote, do a little night work, unquote, uh, end quote. Gagné goes on to testify that at that meeting, Duhamel was extremely generous. The champagne and cognac flowed. And Duhamel finally explained to the two men that he was in possession of a substantial amount of securities, but needed their assistance in liquidating them. Duhamel's eventual trial dragged on for months and set the precedent of continuing into a Saturday session, a first in the Quebec court history. Duhamel eventually made bail and was released from Bordeaux. While out on bail, Duhamel made what he thought was an anonymous call to the Montreal police, but the detective recognized his voice. If you don't stop playing with me, I'm going to fix things once and for all, he said. Then, in October 1963, the judge set a new and even higher bail amount of $40,000, and Duhamel was returned to Bordeaux once again. Bordeaux Jail Christmas Eve, 1963. Inmates assemble to attend a special Christmas Mass. 
Armand Zuhamel doesn't make it to the service. The 50-year-old rooming house operator is found at the bottom of a staircase. Guards carry him to the infirmary where he dies of a skull fracture. Jail Governor Albert Tangi says he did not call police because there was no evidence of foul play. Besides, Duhamel had been in failing health for months. Coroner Marcel Trahan calls for a non-jury coroner's inquest anyway, scheduled for January 8th, 1964. It is a closed-door affair, and the coroner hastily rules de Hamel's death a suicide. Rumors begin to circulate that de Hamel was actually tossed from the second-story balcony by a fellow convict. But what if Armand Zuhamel's death was neither accident, suicide, or murder? Some begin to speculate that Zuhamel, a man of affluence and influence, may have faked his own death. There are calls for the sealed casket to be exhumed. Director General of the Sarté du Québec, known then as the Quebec Police Force or QPF, Josephat Brunet demands a reopening of the case. The request is met with utter amazement by the Crown Prosecutor's Office and emphatically denied by the Attorney General of Quebec, Charles Edouard Quentin. All pertinent facts were presented before the coroner, and I see no reason to reopen the inquiry.
So who's in the coffin? Better still was Armand de Hamel, simply a swindler, the Lando Calrissian of his generation, although not likely, uh, I can't begin to describe his ugly puss. Or, or was Armand de Hamel a murderer? Months after his death, uh, the papers finally confirm no doubt what the public already knew. Armand de Hamel was a prominent underworld figure. In October 1963, McLean's, McLean's is Canada's national magazine. It's kind of like a Time magazine or Newsweek. McLean's, an article on the inner workings of the mob, named Duhamel the biggest fence for the Montreal syndicate. He was also known to have vacationed in Japan, accompanied by his lawyer, presumably Lucien Gagnon, the man who fled Montreal for New York City, claiming an illness. Some things to note when considering uh, the Jane Doe murder and Duhamel's supposed death. The Nova Scotia prisoner claimed Back River Jane Doe was Rose Laflamme and that she was strangled in a rooming house in downtown Montreal. Duhamel, his legitimate job, was as a rooming house operator. Duhamel was apparently a hunter, capable of butchering deer and putting the meat in a box in the trunk of his Cadillac. Now, Back River Jane Doe wasn't butchered, but the manner in which her corpse was disposed was brutal. Then there's the mysterious disappearance of the bondholder named Baudouin, never to be seen again. Also, Armand Duhamel always seemed to escape conviction in the face of an insurmountable amount of evidence against him. Uh, it's, it's not hard to imagine, given his unscrupulous and high-powered status, that he somehow maybe bribed the judges by the end, his luck and influence may have run out. He finally served two months for using slugs in a highway toll booth. But then there's the whole granting of bail thing, not granting of bail thing. Was Duhamel paying off the judge all through that? Finally, Duhamel was perfectly comfortable using aliases to slip detection. Three by my count in this story. Did Armand de Hamel ultimately makes some big payoffs in Bordeaux, then slip out one night, released into the wild, never to be heard from again. This is who killed Teresa. This was uh, sort of a strange episode to put together. I'll, I'll share some comments, but um, I'm just going to get to the sort of, if you like this show, stuff first. I'll be brief. But then I want to make some comments about where we've been in the in the last year and where I think we're going. Um, uh, again, I'd say you know, go to the website com. a lot of good visuals and uh, one thing I 
neglected to mention earlier, uh, some interesting photos uh, from inside Bordeaux prison from the area, which is a fairly Dickensian-looking thing. It, well, it depends on Dickens or um, Victor Hugo, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> um, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, at Teresa Allure, at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. And my personal, my John Allure handle is at Justice Guy, J-U-S-T-U-S-G-U-Y. It's nothing clever around justice. My mother's maiden name is Justice. Uh, there's a Facebook group, Who Killed Teresa? You can search on Facebook for that. We're also on Instagram. If you like the show, uh, give it a shout out. Um, we're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify. I don't know. There's various options for you to, to um, listen to things. And I feel like I'm missing a social media thing, but uh, perhaps I'm not. So strange because I knew I was going to do a podcast on Back River Jane Doe um, since last spring. That's when I knew I was going to do the the Christmas episode on the Villeneuve's. Um, and as good a time to give you an update on that case as any. Um, the, the two daughters of the Villeneuve's in that Halloween episode, somebody contacted me after I broadcast and um, said, wow, that was a really great memory. It's too bad about the Villeneuve daughters. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, didn't you know in like in the in the early 80s, Vivian was murdered and Debbie later committed suicide, um, which just is, was killer. And there were... there. Long story short, there were a couple of weeks there of trying to find out any information on it. And believe me, I tried nothing, absolutely nothing, just like disappeared from the record. I guess that's kind of an invitation. It's all yours, man. Debbie and and Vivian Villeneuve, you can find something on the suicide and and murder. You're a better sleuth than me because I came up empty. But anyway, so I knew I was going to do that. And I knew um, specifically at uh, around Halloween that the Back River Jane Doe thing um, w- was a full episode because of Armand Duhamel and I, because of the Christmas Eve hook, I was going to wait for December to do it. The um, it, Now, nobody knew I was working on this, but the, the day that I finished the script for it, which was last week, and uh, I would have broadcast last week, but I thought it was a little premature, so I waited. The day I finished that, I got an invitation from somebody to join some face group uh, group, you know, about unsolved murders, and I get those, but, um, and I kind of ignored this one, but then I just went looking, and coincidentally, this group was all about Armand de Hamel and Back River Jane Doe, and I was like, wow, I thought this wasn't really well known, it seems to be quite, you know, well known, and um, 
but it was weird that the, the, the member who posted it uh, is convinced that her aunt is back river Jane Doe. I, I have no reason to doubt them other than I don't have any proof of that. They can't offer any, any proof. So I don't know. Um, but it got weird. I think, I think there was an issue of, I, I don't know if the person is work was de- trying to develop a TV show on this or, or some kind of project. I don't think it's worthy of that. I think it's a podcast. I don't think it's, but far be it for me to be a judge on this, but it, um, relations got very, very prickly. Um, I think there were thoughts that I stole it. I didn't steal it at all. I'm telling you, it's like completely by chance. I think she started this group in September, right around the time that I was like, oh, um, this is a Christmas episode, not a Halloween episode. And then I began to dig and found that, like, this person friended me one association away. So I didn't really know her, but I saw that she was friends with, you know, my colleague, my writing partner, Patricia Pearson. So I wrote Patricia and I said, do you know this person? She said, no, I thought you did. And I was like, no, I thought you did. And I always am a little irritated by that um, when that happens. But then lo and behold, the next thing I know, the person blocks me. So on Facebook and I'm like, oh, fiddle dd i mean give me a fucking break um anyway um i didn't steal anything i really don't think armand dml is as i said anything worthy of anything more than 30 minutes on a podcast and let's uh have that rest So yeah, uh, kind of the year in review, looking back a little bit, because I don't, I don't do that. I kind of like the episodes to stand alone, but I do understand you're kind of left at, well, did anything come of all of this? And I have to say that, you know, after you release this information, you know, what the police will do with it is anybody's guess. And I have no control over that, nor I'm beyond the days when I was going to heavily lobby the police. I say a few things occasionally and make my point, but I am not going to firebomb their emails and, and write editorials. I'm just I'm just beyond that. I'm going to say what I have to say and get out. And they either do something or they don't, and we have no control over that. But a, 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 some good news for uh, English-speaking uh, listeners in the rest of Canada outside of Quebec... Um, the Diane Deary, Mario Corbet uh, television series, this six-part series, La, de, uh, La, de, La Dernière Soir, is going to be broadcast on the CBC in January over six weeks. So I presume it's translated or subtitled. Um, so you get to see that. And I think it's really, really good. And I give more updates later on that. The Francine de Silva case last spring, um, glass of fashion, uh, murdered in the mid-80s um, in uh, downtown Montreal near the uh, the plateau. Um, that got developed into, I think it's included in a, in a show on unsolved murders in the 70s. Um, 
and um, uh, sometimes I'm I'm a little sensitive about those things. It's on a case-by-case basis. No one likes to have their work, like, taken from them. Um, And I, I know specifically with this case, I mean, no one knew about this case and I developed some things in it. And, and one of the things particularly that I know that they stole is the connection between Francine and Nikki Goudreau, who were both found murdered essentially on the same street um, in Montreal. And no one put that together. And, I, and I'm not going to get credit for it. And it does, you know, burn my bunions. But um, in this case, I have to say, look, put it in perspective. I didn't know about that case either. Her friend brought it to my attention and asked me to, to develop it. And now someone else is just developing it a little further into a, a TV series. And if that's cool with her friend and her family, as I know it is, then I'm cool with it too. I, I don't have ownership over these things. Um, the Margaret Coleman murder... Uh, she's the woman from California who was murdered in outside of Montreal. I got nothing. I wish I got something, but I, I got nothing on that. Uh, and later, um, Jocelyn uh, Baudouin and uh, René Lassard, the two teenagers from Montreal who went on a hitchhiking camping trip through the Saguenay. Um, I've heard that's being pitched um, as a... Uh, Potentially a television series, their unsolved murders. I'm, I'm cool with that. Again, um, I didn't have anything particularly, um, I, I would say, new to say in it. I just kind of dug it up, so go with it. L'Affaire Dupont, um, uh, the cop who was uh, murdered um, in Trois Rivières, 69, 70, I believe. Uh, that, that's being developed, has been developed into quite a. Uh, lengthy podcast in in the French uh, language very successful again those two brothers are are like hell on fire um, I just wanted to bring that case to light to an English audience but n- nobody needs my help with uh, L'Affaire Dupont Teresa Pearson Debbie Robinson um, this is the um, the Ville La Salle case where they kid is found in the parking garage and and then a, a year later another secretarial student Debbie Robinson goes missing and is found a couple of days later apparently had been kidnapped um, on Pearson I know there's definite movement on this um, and information has been several sources of information has been um, brought forward and that's all I can say about it. Uh, on the Debbie Robinson case, someone did come to me and explain rather um, logically that that might have been a hoax, which is unfortunate since she later died in the tragically in the World uh, Trade Center. And then, of course, I mentioned uh, earlier the, the Villeneuve daughters who put on that great Halloween night display addressed as the three witches on Pavilion Street, the cauldron and the, and the uh, you know, fog machine. Uh, apparently one of the daughters was murdered and the other tragically took her own life. So that's 
a better pill to swallow. The new year? Um, I don't know. Uh, I have to keep the pulse going on this little podcast as is. Just just keep it pulsing along until um, late this, um, excuse me, late September 2020, which is the book launch from Penguin Random House. So I, I got I to gotta keep it just marching along at its current pace for nine months. Uh, I have some ideas how to change uh, the tone ever so slightly in the new year. It's about six or seven cases, all thematically similar. Um, and um, uh, I'll tell you, balls to the walls, brutal. Um, that's what they have in, in common. So I think that's what I'm going to do. All Quebec. Um, um, all essentially unknown. <laughs> hey, come on. That's what I do. Um, so I think I'm going to do that. And then after the book is launched, um, I think the tone will probably change again. I'm not really sure how. Uh, you know, this thing could be tremendously successful. Um you might get totally ignored in the flotsam and jetsam of true crime product. It's it's hard to predict, um, and the marketing is kind of out of my hands, except what I can do with, you know, guerrilla marketing on social media and all that. But I don't think that's going to have a major effect. So we'll see. I'm, I'm trying to just kind of keep it cool and not get too excited about it. But being proactive about some things, I don't want to get my caught with my pants down completely um so uh, so that's kind of where we're at um under an hour here today i think that's that's good i'm out it's not really a christmas episode per se well it is played some carols pickles here she says hi to everybody wishes everybody a meow 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 and uh and uh, I'm your host, John Allure, and have yourselves a great, great day.
We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. True crime on A&E with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking true crime every Thursday and Friday on A&E.